The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, Silvercorp isn't your typical Canadian junior mining company. There's much less drilling and very little investor dilution. Quick to production since the start of the company, more or less. It's really a great revenue model that's been based all along on the high grades at the Ying Mine. Dr. Rifeng, his approach is more entrepreneurial than most other mining companies. Canadian mining companies typically will go out, drill, make a discovery, try to make it bigger, go to the market, Market for more money to make it bigger. That model works. But what that does is it creates dilution for most shareholders. Whereas Rui went out and within the first three years of Silvercorp being a public company, generated $30 million in revenue in the third year by taking direct shipping ore and just shipping it to the smelter. So that minimizes dilution for shareholders because he didn't have to go back to the market for more capital because he created his own. His model is to get into production as fast as you possibly can to minimize dilution and all the assets that we're looking at right now, that model will apply. So that has to be the model going forward. You mentioned you're looking for assets. Are they going to be in China? outside of China? And how do you find a project like the Ying Mine? How do you do that globally? He also is a geologist. He's a PhD in geology. So what he's found is that most Canadian mining companies and most companies in the world, as I said, take a high-grade discovery, which they brought to the market to capitalize. And then once they start drilling, to go back to the market, they usually have to take the low-grade material and spread the tons across the grade, which drops the grade. And by looking at the geology, he seems to be able to find, uh, he calls treasure boxes or, or high-grade pods that can actually be mined fairly quickly. They have to be close to surface or have to be accessed easily. So he'll find those, and that's the kind of assets that we're looking for. We're those assets, if you look at the 43101 of the resource holistically, the grades have dropped, but the tonnage has gone up. But if you remodel, he goes in and remodels 43101 to look at the specific high-grade areas. And if he can get a high-grade area that can deliver $50 million in profits for a company every year for at least $50 million for seven years, five to seven years, then he thinks it's worth going after those kinds of assets to create profits for Silvercorp. I understand that we can't get into specifics, but has Dr. Feng identified potential acquisition targets? Yes, we've identified probably right now. We're quite busy here with the cash we have in the bank. And we've probably identified 10 of those. And we almost had one, but a larger mining company 
very large mining company came in and just scooped it on us. We're a little bit disappointed by that, but there are lots more. Again, you mentioned organic or inorganic growth. We're looking in Asia. China has been to buy properties in. A lot of the mining companies have now have large market caps and have larger wallets, so they're actually bidding them up. But organically, we could grow in our own area around where our mine is currently exists, and that would be a good way to grow organically because it would allow us to sort of reach out just beyond our borders, so the borders of the Ying mine particularly, where we're looking and we're active, and we could use the existing infrastructure, which wouldn't cost us that much more money and wouldn't dilute shareholders, and that's one way to go. And we are looking actively there. And the other way to go would be to go inorganically or outside of China. We're looking in Asia like in Mongolia and Cambodia. We're also looking in South America, Central America, and Mexico. So it would require, again, a little bit more time to develop those particular assets. But as I said, the assets he goes after, the model is to get into the production with a time frame of, of a maximum of 24 months. So that means it's got to have either infrastructure that we are buying with it or infrastructure nearby we can utilize. He's about making profits. But you've got the cash to really do that, don't you? Well, we've got almost $100 million in cash. We have an asset that looks like we may get another $100 million for. We'll make $50 million this year after tax. We have access to other capital, so we don't want to use it all up. I mean, we are paying a dividend to our shareholders, and that may, that dividend may increase. If we don't find something that's accretive, then we'll look at increasing that dividend because we'd like to, the shareholders should get some of that money. But yeah, we're well capitalized. So our listeners, shareholders, and potential investors in your company should just pay attention and look for news regarding that potential. We will probably pull the trigger on an acquisition within the next 12 months. Let's talk about the silver market in general. With all the global growth, there's much less speculation and more use of the metal per se with perhaps the market reflecting that. Silver is an industrial metal, obviously, and one of the things that's happening that seems to be driving some of the industrial growth faster than other sectors is photovoltaics or um, solar panels. And China is one of the biggest producers, I think, if not Germany was, but I think China has now taken over as the largest producer of photovoltaics and at the lowest price point. What I've read is it's driven down the cost of alternative energy. We have a situation in BC right now where there's an election going on and the current premier is pushing. I'm not going one way or the other. I'm how to vote here, but but she's pushing the site see dam. And I heard last night that the alternative energy here with wind and solar really makes the model of building the site see dam not obsolete, but it really changes the economics of it if you're looking for alternative energy. And that really comes as a result of the drop in the cost of solar and wind. In China, we use a lot of silver in these photovoltaics. That's part of where the rise in the industrial use of the silver is right now. What do you think about the Van Eck Fund or the GDXJ effect? on the market. I've been getting a lot of calls from distraught shareholders who seem to actually, I'm actually quite impressed by our shareholder base and most shareholders in general. Some people don't give them enough credit, but boy, they certainly understand markets and do their homework these days with the information you can get off the internet. But they call and say, look, we know it's not your fault, really. This is this GDXJ readjusting, but boy, how long do you see this going on? I don't know the answer. I mean, Van Eck is our largest shareholder in the of the, the GDXJ. And it affect, it's a really severely affected our share price uh, negatively because they're having to rebalance this fund. But uh, as one of the, my investors called me, he says, well, a rising tide lifts all boats, but a uh, lowering tide does the same thing. So we're all lifting and lowering at the same time. And I just hope that they can readjust this thing. I don't know whether the regulators should get involved in terms of something, a fund this size can, that can have that much of an effect when it has to readjust itself uh, an average of 5%. It's 
quite dramatic in the marketplace, but at least we know why it's happening, and, and that should give us at least some common sense. Having said that, though, the valuation of your stock and what you're doing there in China, I'm speculating here, and it's a forward-looking statement, there's potentially some great value moving ahead. We think that with the resource that we just put out, that we've been mining there for almost 12 years and replaced every single ounce of silver that we take it out. So we've still got another 20 years of mine life at 300 grams per ton. Now, the 300 grams per ton, according to the new resource, we will be mining for the next seven years. So if silver stays at this particular current price, we'll be making you know an average of 50 to $60 million after tax a year for the next eight years. And of course, I can't comment on whether the silver price will stay where it is, but I always have hope. I'm a half glass full kind of guy. But even having said that, at 300 grams per ton, what high grade does is mitigate against the vagaries of those price fluctuations against other of our peer group that don't have that kind of grade because when you don't have grade and the price goes down you're not going to make money so for us in the future with the kind of head grade that we have we're looking at good growth and steady growth and we're hoping to add growth with new acquisitions and just one quick point the cost of producing silver for silver corp all in sustaining cash costs is a dollar 87 an ounce for the last quarter for the last nine months it's been about three dollars and 89 cents if you add in the byproduct product credits, lead and the zinc, because lead and zinc has really gone up in the last few months. It's a negative number, negative $2.88. I don't really like to use a negative number. That's fine. At $1.87 and $3.86 when you've got $18 silver. And we're at the front of the pack and kind of in the cost curve, how low our costs are. I'm happy with that. Well, Gordon, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to visiting with you at the Minds and Money New York conference coming up on May 3rd and 4th. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks, Elvis. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvacorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SBM. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, President of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Gold Cliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, you just released news stating that permitting has advanced at the Pine Grove project in Nevada. Everything that we're doing in trying to achieve our end goal, which is to make Pine Grove become a free cash flow generator as quickly as possible. Everything involved in that is a process, particularly all the issues relating around permitting. They are not singular events or one point in time thresholds, but really an ongoing process. So the disclosure the other day was the appointment of senior permitting consultant and his role will be in assisting the Pine Grove Joint Venture in streamlining the process and in the communications that are important in the process. And if I can just take a brief second to talk about the communication part. You know, those of us in this business are obviously entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs have a particular, I would say, personality. There are personality traits and there are certainly characteristics of the entrepreneur. Among those characteristics are that we are solution-oriented, we're problem solvers, we're pushers, we want to get things accomplished and move 
moving forward. Those traits, those characteristics, personality types that lead to those are oftentimes quite a bit different from the traits and personality types of a bureaucrat. And in the process of communicating between a project sponsor, the owner of a would-be project, and the regulatory agencies, sometimes that communication can get offside just because of the differences in personalities and approaches to business. Not that there's any intention of those communications getting offside, but they've happened a lot. And if they're not controlled, sometimes the getting offside can become downright adversarial, then everything just takes an awful lot longer and it's an awful lot more expensive. The fellow that we've engaged to assist us with this is a former high-level bureaucrat. He was the assistant deputy for mining for the BLM in Nevada. He knows how to speak the language. He knows what the bureaucrats in the various local, state, and federal agencies, he knows how they speak. He knows what their needs are. He's going to be able to represent what we want to do, we think, in a more efficient and in a better communication style than we ourselves could do. So you've bridged an important gap. Very much so. I have permitted in other places. I have permitted exploration programs many times in my career. Our director, Paul Saxton, who's also the president of our joint venture partner, he's been responsible in mine building now several times and permitted those, including permitting a large operation in California that had a serious desert tortoise issue. So we've both been involved in the permitting process in the past, but we know having someone on side with us who speaks the language of the regulators is very, very important. The project has been advanced in terms of the baseline environmental work and archaeological work. That stuff's already been done a couple years ago by the joint venture partner. It's kind of restarting this process and getting it move forward as quickly as possible. There are two important areas, the most important which will be the submission of the plan of operations for the mine. That takes obviously a little bit of a longer time and has a lot more inputs to it, so this fellow will be assisting us in preparing that. But the second thing we want to do, which is a nearer term, we want to expand on the drill program that we completed last December, and we were drilling on patented claims at that point, which don't require a permit, and we drilled as far as the claim boundary. We were fortunate enough to identify a new zone of mineralization. That new zone continues beyond the patented claims onto the regular load claims, which are also owned by the Pine Grove Joint Venture. And so the follow-up drilling will require a permit and this fellow has been working already very closely with our exploration group to submit that permit. Well, George, I certainly do appreciate the update. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Always a pleasure. I've been speaking with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and go to goldcliff.com for more information on the company. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Michael Sweatman, 
president and CEO of Eureka Resources Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EUK and in the U.S. as ERKAF. Eureka Resources is an exploration stage company in the business of the acquisition, exploration, and evaluation of gold properties located in the province of British Columbia and in the Yukon Territory of Canada, as well as lithium in the state of Nevada. Forward-looking statements may be made. Mike, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. If you wouldn't mind, give us some background on Eureka Resources. Well, the company was founded in 1981, and it was founded to develop what we call now the FG Project, then called Fraser Gold. It was founded by a prominent Vancouver entrepreneur, Mr. Jack O'Neill. He founded the Coast Hotel chain, actually. The company worked on this property or had joint venture partners work on this property since 1981 and has spent over $15 million have been spent by various joint venture partners over the years. The project and the company was basically dormant when current management group took over in June of 2015. And we tidied a few things up and optioned out the FG property to Canark Resources. Canark, you may know, is run by Brad Cook, also of Endeavor Silver. So they're a very, very prominent and strong group, and we expect them to they'll be spending half a million dollars this summer in the Caribou region. Our projects to date cover three distinct regions, Nevada, Yukon, and the Caribou area of British Columbia. Tell us more about the lithium property in Nevada. Our property is a real raw exploration project located about 40 miles southeast of the Clayton Valley. Now, the Clayton Valley is quite famous. It's the only producing lithium property in the United States. And with the rise to prominence of Tesla and the Tesla Gigafactory being built near Reno, Nevada, this was a really good prospect for us. And we hope to drill this property later on in the summer. It's a really, really good exploration prospect. Would you keep that in Eureka, or would you potentially spin that out, or you don't know right now until you do? We don't really know. I mean, we're hoping to be successful, obviously, and if we are successful, then there'll be some decisions as to made as to whether we go forward with the project or we try to monetize it. We took on the project as a defensive measure in June of 2016 when the price of gold looked like it was going to 800 Of course, we purchased the property, and immediately the price of gold went up. So it's turned out to be sort of an add-on that's not the prime focus of the company. So we'd like to drill it, find out what we've got, and then make some decisions about the property. It's interesting because you've selected projects in two areas that experienced gold rushes in the past. The Caribou District in British Columbia all the way back to the 1850s and the Yukon in the 1890s. That's really what we tried to do. We made a strategic decision to go after gold in areas where gold has been found before. We find that that's a pretty good starting point for this. And the Yukon, of course, with the 1898 gold rush and the Caribou with gold rushes in the late 1850s, early 1860s. So we have three properties in the Caribou District, previously noted the Fraser Gold or FG project, as we call it. We have our Gold Creek project, which is located adjacent to the Spanish Mountain deposit, which recently released a preliminary economic assessment, and our recently acquired CKN project, which is right next to the Gibraltar copper mine in central British Columbia. So that's good. Going where gold and resources have been found before. I'm sorry, uh, are you looking for copper too? We're actually looking for gold. Interestingly enough, the Gibraltar copper mine doesn't have any gold in it, but the property that we've acquired quite close to them does have indications of gold in soil samples. So we think we may be on to either a different phase of the mineralization or something that's caused the gold to come 
to our particular location, but we are right next to their property. We're seeing recent interest in the Yukon as some of the majors are coming in and acquiring or doing joint ventures before any of these junior companies even think about going into production or further developing their resources. They're almost automatic targets. Is that what you're hoping for? This is exactly what we're looking for. I mean, the Klondike White Gold Dawson Range area. The source of the Klondike gold has never been found. We're, of course, that's one of the motivations for looking at. There is gold in the creeks that drain our properties or are adjacent to our properties in the Yukon. Gold in the creeks had to come from somewhere, usually upslope. The natural riffles that created by streams and stuff create the placer mines, but the hard rock source of this gold is really what we're looking for. You know you have placer, but you're looking for the hard rock. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have any placer claims. There's two different types of claims. There's the placer claim, which is from surface down to the bedrock, and then there's the hard rock claims, which underlie that. It's not necessary that the gold will be found in the same exact area as the gold because over the millennia the gold has arrived at the creek bottoms through natural erosion processes. So hopefully we can find a source of that gold. Which project are you most excited about right now? They're all at different stages. I would suggest that the Gold Creek project or our Fraser Gold project certainly is the most advanced. It has a million ounce resource. It's broken down as measured and indicated resource of 376,000 ounces and 634,900 furred ounces at that property. So it's definitely further along. And that's the reason that we optioned it to Canark was because they're going to spend some money and try and expand the resource quite intensive drilling is going to be involved and the cost for us was just going to be prohibitive in terms of dilution. So we've taken on some projects that are a little bit less advanced, Gold Creek being probably our most advanced of the remaining projects and that being right next to a resource at Spanish Mountain. And then we have our Yukon projects where there's gold in the creeks, but there's been really not a whole lot of work done on those properties. And what our intention is, is to fly an airborne survey over those Yukon projects to try to develop some targets where we can go in on the ground. But we'll fly over those projects this early part of the summer and hopefully we'll develop some targets to go after on the ground later on and towards the end of the exploration season. What sort of news flow do you expect over time? News flow will be announcing commencement of work and as results are available, we'll certainly provide them. It's a pretty unique thing that we're going to be drilling on three different properties. One in Nevada. Secondly, in the Gold Creek project, we intend to drill a couple of holes and Canark will be drilling extensively on our FG project. So there'll be a significant amount of news flow probably towards the later part of the summer and into the fall because I think Canark's not actually going to start their program till sometime in early August. We hope to get onto the Gold Creek project earlier than that in late May or early June. We have to do some assessment work in order to hold on to the claims. We'll have news flow pretty steadily throughout the summer. Some of it will be more exciting than others and hopefully we have some discoveries because we have the potential to make discoveries. We've got Nevada with the lithium project. We've got Gold Creek drilling. And then later on in the summer, the FG project will be drilled. So there'll be lots of work when we do our airborne survey, which we're in the process of trying to find some fuel caches. We'll be caching fuel for the helicopter survey, which will be coming hopefully later in May. There'll be steady news flow throughout the summer. What does your share structure look like? We have currently 38 million shares outstanding. More than 20% of it is held by management and by directors. We're in good shape as far as that goes. Everybody's committed. The rest of the shares, 
with original shareholders as far back as 1981. And in fact, I've had calls from some of those old shareholders. Oh, my dad's been dead for 25 years. And we found out because you sent out proxy materials that we own some shares. How many do we own? There's been a little bit of that go on too. So this share structure is quite tight. Hoping to get some more interest in the company by talking to people like yourself. Where are you trading at lately? Well, we've been trading in the nine or 10 cent range, which I think is fair for what we've got. We've got a market cap of about $3.8 million. It won't take much, I think, to add value to that. Whether the market reflects it is one thing, but certainly we have the ability to add significant value if we have successful programs. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. We'll look for news as you have it in future broadcasts. Thanks for joining me on the program. Well, thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Michael Sweatman, President and CEO of Eureka Resources Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EUK and in the U.S. as ERKAF. Forward-looking statements may have been made. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the President and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCEF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Northern Vertex Mining Corporation is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project located in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome back to the program. Ellis, thank you very much for having me on. If you don't mind, for the benefit of our new listeners, give us an overview of the company. We are very active down in Northwest Arizona. We're putting a mine into production called the Moss Mine. It's a gold-silver project. We've done a test mining facility on site. We produced 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver. And we've now taken that test mining and we're actually under construction to go into full-fledged commercial production. And we're expecting to pour gold in the fourth quarter of 2017. So we're pretty excited with all the activity on site and the attention that's being paid to the Moss Project. You have recent news involving water at the Moss Mine Project. We put out news this morning on the water wells that are pumping water and provide us with a significant amount of production for the commercial stage. With the production wells and the makeup water from the pit that will be created, we have sufficient and more than enough water to supply the mine, and so that is a a big milestone for the company. We are also working on our final permit, which we expect to be in any time, and with that, we'll be looking to move towards equipment financing and a number of different items which are on the critical path as we move towards production, as I mentioned in the fourth quarter of this year. So between now and July, you'll see most of the construction complete, and then we'll start loading the heap leach pad and expecting to pour gold in the fall. Why is water so important in a project such as yours? Well, water is used for the the heap leach process. And in terms of gold mining, heap leach operation is the least expensive of any recovery methods used. So this is something that has been tried and true, and we end up sprinkling the pad or the ore that is put onto a heap, and the solution percolates out the bottom, and then it's moved into what they call a Merrill Crow facility, and that solution is then recovered and converted into Doré bars, and the process is quite remarkable, really, but it's a very low-cost recovery method. In terms of mining, this is the best process that can possibly be used. How environmentally friendly is this process? 
Well, as an example, we were using the heat bleach process in the pilot plant or the test mining, and when we were complete, we basically flush that heap and we bring it back to drinking water standards. In regards to safety and, and the recovery process, we're using best practices in the industry, and our safety record really reflects that. We've gone 1,600-plus days with no accidents whatsoever on site. I remember being on site and watching a training video before I could go anywhere. Yeah, that's standard practice. You're not allowed to go on Northern Veritech site until you've watched that training video and of course safety equipment is then supplied. Every meeting that we have in the company is always led with a safety sort of introduction. That's something that I think is just part of the culture is safety has to be first and we certainly practice that. With gold near $1,250, $300 an ounce and possible fluctuation up or even down, the Moss Mine is quite economic. As you mentioned, the current prices that we've designed our mining facility on are $1,250 gold. So with that $1,250 gold price, our economics are very strong. We've got an internal rate of return after tax of 48%. Uh, we have an all-in sustaining cost to produce an ounce of gold at $662 per ounce. So those numbers are exceptional for a mining project. They're in the lower quartile for most mining projects that I'm aware of. 48% after tax return is just exceptional. Most mining projects would be 20 to 25%. Those numbers are very strong. If you were to look at the sensitivity analysis with gold at $1,000, we would still have a return of approximately 24%, which again is the normal for most mining projects. But if you move to 1375, our internal rate of return is up over 57%, and $1,500 gold is showing a 68% return. That's really reflected in the fact that this project has a low capital expenditure of approximately $33 million for a mining project. That's very low. And the all-in sustaining cost being $662 per ounce. That gives you a healthy margin of over $588 per ounce. So this project is one that will be making strong returns at $1,250 gold. It will still be in production at $1,000 gold when many others are shutting down should gold pull back. But if we see $1,400 or $1,500 gold price, then of course the returns are just exceptional. As much as I follow gold projects globally, the Moss Mine Project has only positive infrastructure attributes, basically having the best of all worlds in play. Well, it is located an hour and a half south of Las Vegas, so it's easy access about three and a half hours west of Phoenix. So in terms of a mining project, it's just an exceptional location. We're seven or eight miles outside of the town of Bullhead City, which has a population of approximately 45,000 people. So our mining workforce can live at home with their families and travel to site on a daily basis, 20-minute drive to work with most resource companies and mining companies, a lot of these projects are in remote locations and that's just very stressful on families and and at least a high turnover rate with employees. So we're very fortunate in that regard. And there's virtually zero weather issues. You can work year-round. Yes, it's a nice climate to work in. Of course, in the summer times, the heat does get fairly warm, but that's offset in the winter with just the very comfortable temperatures. So year-round, this is a project that can be worked on, and that's not an issue. Let's talk about the share structure. Well, we're sitting right now at about 111 million shares outstanding. We have a commitment from Sprott Lending for up to 20 million U.S., and as I mentioned, we're on the doorstep of arranging an equipment financing for somewhere between 8 and $9 million. So with that in mind, we have a very strong structure. We're well-financed, and we're moving towards this 
ultimate goal of pouring gold in the fourth quarter of this year in 2017. So the construction is constantly ongoing and changing the site dynamics on a weekly basis. So it's pretty exciting. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on TuneIn Radio or iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Steve Roebuck, the president and CEO of Enforcer Gold Corp, trading under the symbol VEIN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Enforcer Gold Corp is engaged in mineral exploration in northern Quebec and holds a significant land position over the underexplored Montalembert Gold in Shear Vein property. Steve, give us an overview of your company. The name is Enforcer Gold Corporation and our ticker symbol is Vein, V-E-I-N. And Enforcer Gold was a strong name and very memorable. Vein really reflects the high-grade nature of our gold project. Speaking of high grades, I've actually seen a couple of rocks that you pulled out of one of the veins. There's a channel sample. And of course, channel sampling is difficult to do. And to find 438 grams gold over one meter was spectacular. This was topped by another sample on that same vein structure. I went about 20 meters, 75 feet to the north. I spotted a little bit of visible gold and I brought my hammer and my chisel to work. Started going after what I thought might be an interesting piece. It turned out to be a little bit more than that. It's actually a real trophy piece. We haven't been able to assay it because it's so spectacular, almost museum quality. So yeah, it is a high-grade gold project at this point. You were sitting on the sidelines waiting for a project like this before you came on board. That's correct. A project like this comes once in a career, and I think that karma found me in many ways, and I have been one of these guys that always try to do it right, be a true person. In finding this project was a bit of good luck. My back background is gold mining, gold exploration. I've worked for BHP Billiton, Scorpio Gold Corporation, Placer Dome, Ore Resources, a number of high-profile companies. So my background as a geologist has suited me well, mining, exploration, and most recently for the last 10 years involved in the junior sector. So finding a project like this is, it just suits my skill sets and what I want to do, what I want to accomplish in the years ahead. I have held the rocks in my hand. They're quite impressive. And really, when you see Bonanza grades on paper, you hear about it, it's almost too good to be true and then you hold the rocks in your hand you get excited about it so what's the next step begin the exploration we took the project on in october of 2016 we released those channel samples which were fantastic numbers now it's time to get to work and it really starts in the next two weeks we're going to be doing airborne mag survey so it's a large project it's 15 kilometers strike length by five kilometers 7500 hectares in size or about 18,000 square acres so it's a big project so we're going to be flying an airborne mag survey and that's going to give us a lot of information in terms of the geology and more importantly the structure that controls the mineralization so it begins in the next two weeks we're really looking forward to getting that going and that's going to generate a number of targets for us uh, above and beyond what we already know to exist on the property site being such a big project i think we've got a target rich environment we'll see that that's the next step for us how are you funded for that exploration that rock that uh, you saw i mean that did a lot of talking for me when you have a museum specimen like that. We were able to raise $4 million, 2.2 in flow through and 1.8 in, in hard dollars. Talk about the share structure. What does that look like? It's excellent. The company only has 40 million shares outstanding in basic right now. We've got 11.8 million warrants at 30 cents, 1.8 million options at 20 cents. So that gives us fully diluted 53 million. If you're looking at what our market cap is, we trade at roughly about 20 cents. So we're looking at about an $8 million market cap, half of that, which is actually 
cash in hand right now. Tell us about the history of the project. The project was first prospected in the late 1940s by a company called N.A. Timmons. They ended up doing a drill campaign in 1950. They drilled 30 holes. From that program, the engineer who did the work, he only sampled 24 out of the 30 holes. And of the six holes that he sampled, he only took 10 samples. It's really a head-scratcher as to why so much work was done and so little information was garnered from it. I was reading one of his logs, drill hole 16, in fact. It was five and a half meters of mineralized material, and he didn't take one sample in it. I'm not too sure what exactly was going on at that time, but that gives me an opportunity. The quality of the logs is there, and they're good, and I'm using them for interpretation of where the veins are, because I do know where the collars are. So I've been able to ascertain what I see at surface on the veins and extrapolate down using his drill log. I'm getting a very good understanding of what the actual project looks like and what he saw in 1950. I said, okay, that's some good information. That's 67 years ago. Fast forward now to 1973. A company called Roshlam Mines got involved in the project. And as opposed to drilling it, they made the decision, and I think it was a good decision, to do a bulk sample. So that means going straight up the vein. They actually came up with excellent information. It does indicate that once again, there is high-grade materials. I've been visiting with Steve Roebuck, the president and CEO of Enforcer Gold Corp trading as V-E-I-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold, trading as V-I-T on the TSX Venture Exchange and V-I-T-F-F in the U.S. Victoria Gold Corp. is a leading gold exploration and development company. The company's Eagle Gold Project in Yukon, Canada, hosts a 43-101 compliant reserve of 2.7 million ounces of gold. The Eagle Gold Project is shovel-ready and when in production will produce... 200,000 ounces of gold annually at an operational cost of approximately $550 per ounce. The project is permitted for construction and operations. Victoria shareholders are well positioned to participate in a highly leveraged gold play and construction of the largest gold mine in Yukon history. John, let's discuss your recent news. Victoria Gold recently announced a $6.2 million Phase 1 exploration program in the Yukon. That's quite a bit of money dedicated toward exploration this year. As you said, it's a phase one program, so we'll be spending that between now and middle of June. With encouraging results, we'll move into a second phase program later in the summer. About three million of that will be focused on an area called Olive Shamrock. It's an area we've drilled over the past couple of years. We currently have about 200,000 ounces in the indicated category there. And we think there's potential to grow it to six to 800,000 ounces with the drilling we're doing now. That's another four years of mine life added to the current Eagle. I was looking at some of the Bonanza grades identified at Rex Peso. The balance of the 6.2 million, another 3 million, we're going to spend across the property. And one of the targets is Rex Peso. Historically, there's been silver mining there. Dargel are really looking for gold. They think it has all the right system, the right rocks. Our focus is really on finding more gold there. We'll have a program that'll be soil sampling followed by trenching. If we're encouraged, we'll do some more drilling. Even though you're slated to go into production, hopefully beginning in late 2018, you're always going to be an exploration company as well. you got to find the next one, trying to demonstrate to the market is more than just Eagle. Eagle's a fantastic deposit, probably has a 10 to 20 year mine life depending on gold price. We think there's potential for three or four more Eagles. This is district, not just a single one mine.
online. What would you say to our listeners that have never been to the Yukon and have heard about it only through this program? There's two things about the Yukon. Number one, Tina Trend, which is a geological feature that stretches from Alaska through the Yukon and down into northern British Columbia, is all the right rocks, lead, zinc, copper, gold, silver, in those rocks. So, so there's really good exploration potential. And then the other key is it's cold up there for six months of the year. So there hasn't been a lot of exploration done. So it's really an untapped area. Some of the majors have finally woke up to the potential up there. In the last six months, we see Gold Corp come in and buy Kamenak and are moving forward with a big exploration program, coffee property. A few weeks ago, we saw Agnico Eagle take a very large position in a Yukon Junior. More recently, Newmont took a position in the Juniors. We're seeing a lot of activity up there and the big companies are starting to recognize the potential of the Yukon. What's the plan for Victoria going forward for the next two or three years? We're going to continue doing exploration. The other focus right now is financing the development of Eagle and that's coming along very well. A month ago, we signed an engagement letter with BNP, a large European bank, for a debt facility of 220 million U.S. We think we'll get that finalized here within the next four to six weeks. And that'll be the cornerstone for moving forward with the development of Eagle. About a 12 to 18 month build would have us in full production late in 2018, early 2019. This is a mine that at current gold prices cash flows a lot of money. So by then, hopefully we the next eagle and we sell finance to build a second one. You mentioned that for six months of the year it's cold in the Yukon, but the other six months of the year the weather is very conducive to mining. Cold weather doesn't bother me. I've been my whole 35 year career in Canada's north. First Nunavut and the NWT, now I'm in the Yukon. Can you mine at minus 40? Absolutely. You just have to be a little more diligent in your planning and execution. The summers are beautiful up there. It's not unusual to have 90 degree weather at the height of summer and we have 24-hour daylight so you can get a lot of work done during the summertime. Well John it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks Ellis. I've been speaking with John McConnell president and CEO of Victoria Gold trading as VIT on the TSX Venture Exchange and VITFF in the U.S. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Tyler Dinwoody the vice president of Alabama Graphite Corp trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG and in the U.S. as CSPGF with an advanced Flake Graphite Project in the U.S. state of Alabama. Alabama Graphite intends on being a reliable long-term supplier of specialty high-purity graphite products. Tyler, if you wouldn't mind, give us an overview of the company. Certainly. Alabama Graphite Corp. is a graphite development and technology company whose sole focus is on the production of battery-ready anode graphite, specifically coated spherical purified graphite or CSPG. Now, what's the difference between coated spherical purified graphic or CSPG and the conventional graphite concentrate, which is basically the core business model of all graphite development companies in the world? Excellent question, and that is the fundamental difference between Alabama Graphite and all others in the graphite development space. Every other graphite development company advancing its projects around the world, their core business model, based on their feasibility studies or their preliminary economic assessments, is based on the primary processing of graphite concentrate. And when you think of graphite in the traditional sense, if you will, in the industrial sense, whether it be for the steel industry vis-a-vis crucial 
crucibles and refractory linings or industrial greases and lubricants or brake linings for the automotive or transportation industry. That is your conventional flake graphite concentrate. Technology-grade graphite, if you will, or graphite that is specifically engineered for use in lithium-ion batteries, in particular the anode of a lithium-ion battery, is an entirely different type of graphite. And what do we mean by that? Well, we take the primary processed concentrate, the material, like I say, is the core business model of all of the graphite companies, but this is just when the work begins, if you will. So we take that graphite and we what is referred to as secondary processing. We secondary process that primary material. Well, we take the graphite and we purify it to battery grade. So we purify it to what's known as 395 or 99.95% carbon purity or higher. That is the minimum required for battery grade graphite. And from there, we proceed to micronize it, which is sizing the material to the specific micron size of the battery end user. Usually between 10 and 25 microns is the desired specifications. And then once we size the material, we sterilize it. So we take the flat, jagged flakes, if you will, the conventional graphite, and we spheronize it so we create spheroidal shapes. So the flat flakes become sort of a rounded potato-like shape, if you will. And then from that point, once we have the spheroidal flakes or material, we then surface treat it to enhance its conductivity. So once you go through those myriad of processing steps known as secondary processing, you have your finished battery-ready graphite. And also, the difference from the primary process material versus the secondary process material is that the primary process sort of traditional concentrate is regarded as an unfinished material, an industrial mineral, if you will, whereas the secondary processed graphite is a finished product, a battery-ready finished product that's ready to be deployed in the anode of a lithium-ion battery. If the secondary delivery process is preferred, then why aren't all of the other companies doing that? Specifically, experience, expertise, know-how, and also it's very, very expensive. And with most companies focused on the primary processing aspects of their business, to take up upon to achieve the secondary processing requires an awful lot of capital. And capital is quite precious, as you well know nowadays. I mean, we're in the most hostile capital markets uh, since the Great Depression. So the notion that you'll be able to fund your 100 to $200 million project or your CapEx associated with your primary processing and then do the requisite technical reports, your PEA or subsequent feasibility study, specifically on the secondary, because remember, one cannot speak to the technical feasibility or the economic viability of a secondary processing, whether it be CSPG for batteries or whether it be ultra-high purity flake or any other high-value secondary processed graphite products in the absence of a full technical report. Once you're able to finance those significant associated capexes for those primary process concentrate, you would have to fund the efforts to complete a technical report for the secondary. So to answer your question, it's time and money, and both are precious commodities in short supply nowadays. I've been speaking with Tyler Dinwoody, the vice president President of Alabama Graphite Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange's ALP and in the U.S. as CSPGF. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative resource efficiency.
efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, if you wouldn't mind, please give our audience a brief overview of the company. Pure Energy Minerals is one of the more advanced explorers and developers of lithium resources in North America. We have our flagship Clayton Valley South project, which has sizable inferred resource of lithium and brines, and it adjoins North America's only lithium producer, the venerable Silver Peak Mine in Nevada. And we've just added an exciting new exploration project in the center of the lithium triangle in South America, the Terracotta Project in northern Argentina. You've had a successful lithium brine pumping test, which is really crucial moving forward in Clayton Valley, Nevada. You know, Alice, 2017 is a year of shifting gears for us at Pure Energy a little bit. Our activities at Clayton Valley will be more focused on development and engineering, for instance, as opposed to exploration this year. And the pumping tests that we conduct on the Clayton Valley South Project are, in fact, they're sort of like little test mines, if you will. So we've just completed pumping our CV7 and CV8 wells in recent days and weeks. And when we do that, we pump those wells fairly aggressively to stress that aquifer, understand the hydrological properties, how it's going to yield brine, at what rate, what the effects are, drawing down the water levels in the aquifer and so forth. And these are important tests that have to be done as we estimate the future performance of production wells that might be built. If we're successful there as we work through our preliminary economic assessment coming up and of course our feasibility study we hope to follow. And all that of course lays an important foundation for what another lithium brine mine in Clayton Valley, Nevada just might look like. Let's talk about team building, which is shifting for 2017, and what you see going forward. Realizing that we've got these development activities in Clayton Valley, with which we'll have to coordinate a number of contractors and additional test work and engineering studies, and at the same time launch an exploration program on our new Terracotta project, we are making some shifts in the team, and we brought uh, a new vice president on board. Walter Weinig has joined us, and Walter has almost 30 years' experience. He is a hydrogeologist by training, and he has a long track record in that, but he's also a certified professional project manager. And that's one of those guys, you know the type, Ellis. They have Gantt charts and timelines and to-do lists, and frankly, we need that sort of organization and focus on deliverables. And we're really happy that Walter has joined the team. He's really hit the ground running. He and I work very closely together, and he's helping us complete our plans for delivering our preliminary economic assessment in just a few weeks now, and also, of course, putting the budget and work plan together for the first steps on the Terracotta project, which are already underway. So great to have the team shifting a little bit to look more like a development company and not so much focus on exploration, certainly in Nevada. How are you managing two projects in different parts of the world like this? A lot of people say that a junior company can't run two projects in different parts of the world, Ellis. And in my experience, that's not true. You've got to play to the strengths of your team. I, of course, worked in Argentina, the same province in Argentina, the Salta province, before when I was the CEO of Lithium One between 2009 and 2012. So to some degree, going back to Argentina, we see some of the same team members emerge and want to get together and work together again. But also in Nevada, of course, we've got well-established infrastructure and the team 
team, of course, has been working together there for a while now. So I would say that the key to this is local expertise and local management. And when you're working in South America, of course, you're going to have lead Argentine scientists and contractors. And in Nevada, of course, we got the team we've been working with, Matt Vital, our hydrogeologist and project manager in the field, now reporting to Walter. And I find that the organization's working sort of seamlessly, actually, reporting up to Walter. And of course, you keep these teams small in a junior company, to be sure, but you rely on contractors who are focused, not only in the geography in which you're working, but the stage of the project, the commodity type, of course, in this case, lithium. And so far, we've been very pleased with our ability to keep the overhead low and outsource to contractors where necessary. And then management flows up to a project manager, previously, of course, Andy Robinson, who worked with us for a couple of years, and now, in this case, Walter, as we shift gears and go forward. So far, the team's really pulling together and think drawing on strengths and familiarity and guys who've worked together before is also a big help. Tell us if you wouldn't mind why your company could be the only serious exploration and development company in the Clayton Valley. And these are my words. Well, our focus at Pure Energy has been doing real work. And right from the beginning, we looked to innovate a little bit. Even before I joined the company, Robert and his team realized that to go forward in Clayton Valley, we needed to be thinking about a new technology for producing lithium, more sustainable, more efficient. And so we immediately went down a path that set us apart there. And then we built a team again to address the technical challenges of a new technology and, of course, operating in Nevada and familiarity there. I like to think that you put a strong technical team in the field, and then you have the management sitting over the top of them that realizes what the important milestones are and drives for those milestones. It's true that uh, not every one of these lithium projects is going to turn into a mine, so you want to look at a management team that's focused on the major milestones, has been there before, and is executing with real work. You know, Every hole we drill, every sample we take, every geophysical survey we do, we're learning a lot. And I'm looking forward in 2017 to building the sort of basin models that will allow us to understand Clayton Valley. And it's complicated geology out there, but we'll be the best at understanding Clayton Valley going forward. And I think that gives us an advantage, not just in Clayton Valley, but where we do continuing lithium exploration in other jurisdictions, even in Argentina. There's a lot of similarities there. So technical team focused on the milestones, doing real work and keeping the overhead disciplined and focused. How close are you to potentially fulfilling an offtake agreement with Tesla Motors down the road? We still, in the lithium industry, are faced with, you know, sort of different takes on supply and demand fundamentals. Some people, of course, are speaking about a supply glut. I think that's very unlikely because I think that only a small minority of projects will actually go forward. So I don't think we have a threat of a supply glut. We see strong supply-demand fundamentals, strong price projections, and we'll be reporting on some of those, by the way in our upcoming PEA. We'll have a professional market survey report there that will deliver our comments and outlook on pricing. So that's important. We're still, though, talking about a commodity that does not trade on any commodities exchange. There's no spot price for it. And so a relationship with customers is critical. We continue our dialogue on a regular basis with Tesla. It's very often very technical and has been very helpful to us. And of course, we reach out and we meet other potential buyers of lithium and off-takers. So we're constantly building 
building those relationships. And each day we advance the projects in Clayton Valley and Terracotta now in Argentina. We're taking another step closer to advancing the projects closer and closer to production. So we believe that as we work through the preliminary economic assessment due out in a few weeks, that will give everybody a view of the potential scale of development of that project. And of course, that will accelerate the discussions with potential off-takers. So that's our objective, Ellis, is to put those parameters out there, the scale of the project, the likely capital cost to build it, operating expenses to produce lithium, and that will facilitate those discussions and make them be able to advance a lot more focused on the objective. So typically when you're at this stage of a project, moving from PEA to feasibility in the mining industry, we can expect production to go ahead quite rapidly from there, the two to four year time range in most cases when you're in a jurisdiction that's seasoned in permitting and things like that. So we think the dawn of a new lithium mine in North America isn't very far away and we just have to keep attacking these milestones and delivering uh, at the project level. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. And download the entire Ellis Mart Report on iTunes. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.